The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Covering Pilgrim's Progress. If you've not procured copies of Pilgrim's Progress thus far, uh, it would be beneficial to your soul if you would and then would read along. There are several copies that we make available. There's lots more on places like Amazon, but the three uh, that we've done the reading plan for and broken up the reading into. Uh, the first would be this green offering from Banner of Truth, uh, good font, marginal notes, uh, a wee bit on the expensive side at, I think, coming in at 20 bucks. The next would be this yellow one by who knows who. Uh, we have it out there, so it doesn't really matter. So great font, no marginal notes, but if you're like, I don't read those anyway. This is the book for you because it's like 60% of the green one. Uh, And then the last one would be uh, this one by, I think this is by Solid Ground, the red covered one. Uh, Not good font, but it does have marginal notes. So pick whichever one you desire for your own perusing. I'll be uh, using the green one and uh, we'll judge anyone who uses something uh, other than that. So as we get into Pilgrim's Progress, it would do us good to know a little bit about its author. So the author of Pilgrim's Progress is a Puritan by the name of John Bunyan. He is known uh, for several things. One of them is he has the second worst mustache of the Puritans. The first worst would be uh, Thomas Watson. So if you ever see photos, you'd be like, I see what he's talking about. Uh, He's actually probably the most popularly known or well-known Puritan because of uh, this book that we're looking at. He's probably the most well-known, while people in other churches or friends that you have may not know the name of like Thomas Goodwin or Thomas Boston or Flavel or some of the other uh, greats that we really appreciate, they would likely know the name John Bunyan and would have heard of his work, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress in this volume uh, has two primary parts. We'll only be looking at the first one. The first is a story about uh, the journey of Pilgrim, then later called Christian, from the city of destruction to the celestial city. The second part is uh, about Pilgrim's wife, Christiana, and her children and their journey. Uh, by way of curiosity, how many of you have read the first part of Pilgrim's Progress? You've read of Pilgrim journeying to the Celestial City. All right. All right, hands down. How many of you have read the second part, The Story of Christiana? I'm actually surprised there's that many. Many folks have read the first one. Uh, vastly fewer have read the second one. Both are good. And some would even argue, I think Derek Thomas argues this, that some of the theological development is perhaps a bit stronger in the second volume than the first. Uh, John Bunyan is... Um, Like I said, known for this work, uh, the great Puritan John Owen, who is often put in the top three greatest minds of the Christian church. And no, Thomas Aquinas isn't one of the other three. So it'd be John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, and John Calvin would be my my big three list. He says uh, of John Bunyan, who he was a contemporary of, that he would gladly exchange all of his learning for Bunyan's power to touch men's heart in preaching. 
He was such a fine uh, preacher in the way that he would preach what we would call experientially or effectually to the hearts of the listener that when Owen heard it, he said, you know what, he's got something that is extremely rare. Um, Bunyan was, and now he's in heaven, so he still is, a Baptist. And he's one of the few uh, the Puritans that we would point back to and say, there, now there's a Puritan who had all of his ducks uh, in a row. So uh, Bunyan was born in, well, before I get into the details on this, I'm going to do a bit more biographical information this morning for one primary reason. Pilgrim's Progress is in large part biographical. You're going to read things in there and you wonder, why does it take him so long to get here? Or why does this happen? What happens for a very simple reason, it happened to Bunyan. And so he's telling, as it were, his story through Pilgrim's Progress. And so it might do us good to know a little bit about him. Born in 1628 to Thomas and Margaret Bunyan in Elstow, Bedfordshire, outside of Bedford, where he would later uh, spend much time in prison. His father was a tinker, which means he traveled around and fixed anything that had to do with metals, like pots and pans. And if the Teflon came off your pot at home, uh, you would call Bunyan's dad, and he would, I guess, try to fix it if they had Teflon back then. Uh, While he uh, was poor, he wasn't destitute, uh, and he lived... um, the first 16 years of his life at home from, 19, or from 1628 to the 1640s uh, were the season of years he spent at home. Near the end of that time, you remember, civil war breaks out in England. And then I guess that kind of corresponds with two uh, very big tragedies in Bunyan's life or early tragedies in his life. The first would be that his mother and his sister both died within a month of one another. Now that hit Bunyan uh, very, very hard. And then his dad got married three months later. Apparently, tinkers don't waste a lot of time. So uh, it isn't quite clear of all the details, but it, it seems likely that uh, the death of his mom and his sister combined with uh, a, a stepmom that he perhaps didn't get along with. He left the house at, eight, or at 16 years old lied about his age, and joined the parliamentary uh, army and fought there. It is unclear as to whether or not he actually saw battle. Um, He spent about 18 months to two years and was disbanded in 46 or 47. One of the few stories we get from this season of his life is that uh, he was ordered to go and participate in a siege of a castle or something that he lay siege to, And another soldier asked him if he could go in his place. And for whatever reason, Bunyan's like, sure, go for it. Uh, That soldier uh, was on sentry duty and was shot and killed. And that too, I think, weighed heavily on Bunyan. That would be a tough thing for someone to go in your place and die. And either, you know, those mixed emotions of, wow, God save me, combined with, while some guy just died in my place or died where I should have been. So those things tainted his early or affected his early life from the ages of 18 to 21. So he's outside the military at this time and he's not married yet. He said his life was marked with what he called crimson sins. Uh, The two that he lists as primary in his life were cursing and blasphemy. 
He uh, was caught one of the uh, early kind of moments where a conviction of sin started to settle in on Bunyan was where he was caught on the Sabbath playing a game called Tip Cat. And originally I thought it had to do with tipping of cats. And I was like, that sounds like the Lord's work. That sounds like something the Lord would smile upon. But then I Googled it, and tip cat is where you take like a bat, hit a stick, and it comes up, and then you hit it and run around bases. Of course he got in trouble for playing the sinful game of baseball on the Sabbath. Hello? Mm. Later, <laughs> later he was caught, uh, I guess he just had a fit of like swearing and cussing and blaspheming outside of a shop. And he puts it delicately, but a woman of ill repute rebukes him and says, you keep talking like that, you're going to wind up in hell. And oddly enough, that hit Bunyan deeply with her sins. And she's like, you know who's really bad is you. Uh, And so the Lord uses all sorts to bring about an awareness of sin. And so from that time on, he begins to have this weight of sin upon his shoulders that he cannot get rid of. And it lasts at least 18 months. At the uh, very mature age of 21, he gets married. And oddly enough, of all the things we know of Bunyan and all the works he's uh, published, we don't know this woman's name. We know his second wife's name when the first one dies and he gets remarried. We have no idea her name. We know she bore him four kids. We know that their eldest daughter was born blind and named Mary, and she would be of particular uh, nearness to Bunyan's heart. In that, uh, well, let me just read a section for it. If you ever uh, are going, I wish there was a resource on all these Puritans and names of people I don't know anything about. Your prayers are answered if you buy uh, Dr. Beakey's book, Meet the Puritans. They are short biographical sketches we are like, who is Richard Sibbs? You could actually turn and read a couple pages on it, and it's not overwhelming. I want to read uh, a section to you from uh, Beakey's description of this season of Bunyan's life. Bunyan came into contact with some women whose joyous conversation about the new birth and Christ deeply impressed him. He mourned his joyless existence as he realized that he was lost and outside of Christ. Quote, I cannot now express with what longings and breakings in my soul I cried to Christ to call me, he wrote. He felt that he had the worst heart in all of England. He confessed to be, joy- he confessed to be jealous of the animals because they didn't have a soul that would have to give an account to God. He would later be uh, powerfully influenced by a sermon by, we'll run to this uh, person later, by a minister by the name of Guilford, who preached, oddly enough, on the Song of Solomon, chapter four, verse one, behold, thou art fair, my love, behold, thou art fair. God used that sermon from the Song of Songs to begin to draw Bunyan to the sweetness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, In that season, again, he spent about 18 months languishing, knowing that there was a problem, but not knowing how to get relief or salvation from that. So uh, why why does Pilgrim take so long to get 
uh, to not just the wicket gate, but later the cross and the sepulcher where the, where the burden falls off his back? Well, it's easy. It took him a long time. I think even Bunyan would recognize not everyone languishes under the burden for a good long time. Some are brought to a conviction of sin and are brought to Christ quickly. And Bunyan just says, you know, that just wasn't the case for me. And so he writes uh, in a way that takes a while to uh, develop and to unfold. In 1654, it was a big year for Bunyan. He moves back to Bedford with his wife and his four kids all under the age of six. And his daughter Mary being blind. They joined the church at Bedford, became uh, members in 55. Their beloved pastor, John Guilford, a lot of folks uh, suspect that Guilford is actually the character after which uh, evangelist is modeled. There's pieces of the description there that seem that uh, John Guilford was the uh, kind of the foundation of that. Guilford uh, dies, and it's kind of in that moment of unsettling a spiritual state in Bedford that Bunyan then begins to um, preach around at local congregations. In 1660, while preaching in a farmhouse in Lower Samsel, he was arrested and charged with not having the proper paperwork from the king. I guess even back then you needed not just building permits, but preaching permits. He didn't have his, and so uh, they wanted to make an example of him and put him in jail. Beaky records it's during this imprisonment uh, where Bunyan says, uh, yeah, Bunyan says this, when told that he would be freed if he no longer preached, Bunyan replied, if I'm freed today, I will preach tomorrow. He was thrown into prison where he wrote prolifically and made shoelaces to provide some income for the next 12 and a half years. So th- this was the latter, or one of the latter difficulties of his life that God uses to shape and form the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Before he was jailed, he remarried, um, this time to a woman named Elizabeth. I guess we assume his first wife died in 61, and then later in 68 through 72. This seems like an odd arrangement. Um, They never had any formal charges other than you shouldn't be preaching. Um, And so certain jailers at the Bedford Jail would let John Bunyan out to go preach, and then he would come back. And it's said that many Bedford congregations owe their origin to the midnight sermons of John Bunyan. What determination. Like, what kind of crazy person? You let him out of jail, and you're like, come back. And he's like, will do. Goes and preaches the gospel in the middle of the night, comes back, and is like, check him back in, boss. That uh, was a stunning thing to find. Um, he writes that he expected to die in prison because there's just no end in sight. The king that had him in prison there to make an example of him didn't seem to be uh, dying or going away anytime soon. Uh, Bunyan describes the pain of being away from his family, especially his blind daughter Mary. He described it this way, the pulling of the flesh away from my bones. So when you read through this book, You're not reading an ivory tower theologian unacquainted with the ways of life. You're reading someone whose life was marked with the death of some of the people he loved the most in all the world and for being unjustly punished for being a Christian. 
That, that's the kind of person that uh, this story comes to, or this allegory comes to us from. He's released in May of 1672. He enjoys a few short, brief years of freedom and then is arrested for, guess what, preaching again. It was during this imprisonment that he begins his work on the early sections of Pilgrim's Progress. We'll mention it when we get into the text here in just a few minutes when he says that he was uh, you know, going through life and entered into a den and there dreamed a dream. Well, we would know what the den is. He's talking about his prison cell. He's talking about that small piece of confinement from which um, he wrote these things. Uh, Owen later, through various and consistent petitioning, Owen was in far more an influential status than Bunyan was, petitioned for his friend John Bunyan to be released, and he was released on June 21st, 1677, and he owes that uh, again to the work of John Owen. He spent his final years writing and preaching. He died rather suddenly in 1688 due to a fever that he caught while traveling in the cold, no doubt to be preaching somewhere. On his deathbed, these were his final words. He says to those surrounding him, Weep not for me, but for yourselves. I go to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will no doubt through the mediation of his blessed son, receive me, though a sinner. Where I hope we ere long shall meet to sing the new song and remain everlastingly happy, world without end. After telling his friends that his greatest desire was to go and to be with Christ, he raised his hands to heaven and cried, Take me, for I come to thee. Then he died. He was buried in Bunhill Bun Fields, close to his friends Thomas Goodwin and John Owen. What a way to die. Full of faith with your eye, able to see the coming country that is ahead. So that, that's a, it was less brief than I thought it would be. That is a brief sketch of the life of uh, John Bunyan. He's got lots of works um, you can buy his three-volume set, or you can buy individual ones. He is an excellent read. I don't think, as far as Puritans go, he isn't the easiest to read. I would give that award to the guy with the worst mustache, which would be Thomas Watson. But I think he's one of the easiest. Very approachable, um, very conversational at times, and, uh, and just wonderfully done. So we're going to launch into this. If you are reading along with us, which... Hopefully you will, uh, and you want to bring your copy with you. I'll be referencing different sections and reading from them. My goal isn't to read large sections, but just ones that we think are absolutely necessary. Perhaps as you started to read, if your volume has what mine has, and that is this really long, kind of hard to understand uh, poem at the front, He gives uh, an apologetic, not like a, I'm sorry, but an answer for why he's going to write in allegory. It seems like from some of the comments that he makes, he was accused and uh, criticized greatly for writing in such a, uh, it seems like a dark manner is what they called it. He uses the word darkness uh, many, many times throughout this poem, which kind of tells you that That was a word that was being used about him. He says, 
on page nine in Roman numerals in my copy. He says, some love the meat and some love to pick at bones. Boy, it's like he had Facebook back then. But he didn't. Uh, So nothing's really changed in uh, humanity. There were even those in the church back then who wanted to pick at the bones of his method and criticize it. He uh, takes their own way of talking about his writing as dark and he turns it around on them. He says, even dark clouds bring water when bright bring none. Yea, dark or bright, if their silver drops cause to descend, the earth by yielding crops and give praise to both and carpeth not at either, but treasures up the fruit they yield together. Yea, so commixes both that in her fruits none can distinguish from this from that. They suit her well when hungry, but if she be full, she spews out both and makes their blessings null. He says sometimes God uses dark clouds to bring the rain when the fancy bright ones bring nothing. Kind of a, a, a bit of a rebuke to the flowery words that may be theologically uh, tight or impressive, but don't yield or benefit the heart of the common believer. Bunyan's goal was not to impress the seminary students of his day. His goal was to, to encourage the heart of the everyday Christian who, like his pilgrim was traveling from the city of destruction uh, to the celestial city. So the opening words on page one of, I hope, anybody's copy uh, go something akin to this. He says, as I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted upon a certain place where there was a den and laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. I dreamed and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place with his face from his house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and he trembled, and not being able longer to contain, he broke out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? That's the opening scene of Pilgrim's Progress. You find Pilgrim, his face turned away from his house. He's clothed in rags, which would kind of indicate, well, wouldn't kind of, would indicate a wretched spiritual state. And he's holding a book in his hand. Now, this is, the more we read together, the more interactive uh, that we can be. Now, it's hard to be interactive on biographical sketch, because if I was like, where was he prisoned? In what years? And what was his... He'd be like, I don't know. I didn't read the thing he did. But now that we're into the text, oh, what book does Pilgrim have in his hand? The Bible, ob- obviously. And the burden on his back is symbolic of what? Sin, but something in addition to sin. It could be concern for others. It's, it's tied, though, to his sin, and it's contrasted. We're going to run into a character in just a minute named Pliable who doesn't have a burden, but guess what? I don't think Bunyan thinks. Bunyan's not saying Pliable had no sin. So what is then the burden? It's a conviction of his sin as well. It's not just the one or the other. I think it's both together, both simultaneously, both 
sin itself, as, as long as the accompanying guilt, but also his awareness of it. Many of the other characters have no such burden. He's not arguing that they don't have sin. They are not convicted over their sin. So this is going to be Bunyan as well as many of the other Puritans' um, conviction. I didn't mean to use that word again, but there it is. That conviction of sin is the, those first movings in the heart towards salvation. How can one uh, believe in a Savior if they do not even know what they ought to be then saved from. So even in opening up these first, well, this first paragraph, he's showing you that the beginning of the work of the Spirit of God is bringing about a conviction of sin in the heart of the person uh, in question. The, the quote, what shall I do, comes from uh, Acts 16.30. Do you remember who, what character in Acts says those words in Acts 16. The jailer in the town of Philippi, yeah. The Philippian jailer, upon seeing them all there, it seems like he comes under conviction of his sin. The the Spirit of God uses that in his life. So he says, what must I do, and he only quotes half of it, in order to be saved. So Bunyan is painting Pilgrim here as being under the weight of his sin, uh, if you just, we don't have time to read through it, obviously, because we're just summarizing the main movements. Uh, but in this early section, he knows that the city that he dwells in, the city of destruction, will one day live up to its name. The wrath of God is coming upon that city and upon all who dwell in that city. He speaks uh, to his wife and to his kids, and he Uh, is trying to convince them of it. And it's in the middle of this wrestling of his soul that it says in page two on my copy that that he hopes sleep will bring relief from the conviction of his sin. Now, if you've been under the weight of sin, you know, uh, good luck. Uh, Bunyan says, the night was as troublesome to him as the day. Wherefore, instead of sleeping, he spent it in sighs and in tears. So even sleep, which is usually that escape uh, from so many things in life, when the soul is truly troubled about its state, even sleep is just another occasion for the weight of sin to be heavy. In this uh, section of his life, his family, while they're kind of sympathetic early on, quickly uh, stopped being sympathetic, says um, that his, his wife and his kids uh, began to be hardened, though, uh, or excuse me, they also thought to drive away his, dimped, his distemper. They don't know what it is. Like, he's super bummed out about something, can't figure it out. This isn't like him. And so they think, here's what will help him. We'll be harsh with him. We've all thought the same thing. So uh, by, they uh, hope to chase him away his distemper by harsh and surly carriages to him. Sometimes they would deride. Sometimes they would chide. Sometimes they would quite neglect. It sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. Uh, so they have all of these different ways of dealing with him. Sometimes it's harsh and aggressive. Sometimes it's cold and neglecting. And if you even think of your own experience in coming to faith and some of the friends that you've lost along the way, 
Isn't that quite a fit description? Sometimes harsh and sometimes neglecting and sometimes, we'll get to it later, mocking. They do not have a burden of sin and therefore they do not understand the burden that pilgrims under. He says later on, what shall I do to be saved? Quoting the whole section of uh, Acts 16 verse 30. And it's in this uh, scene where the character evangelist we mentioned is probably mirrored after or founded on his old pastor, John Guilford. What a loving way to honor someone who shepherded your soul in the past by actually working him into the text. Evangelist comes and says, uh, wherefore dost thou cry? Why are you crying? And he answers that he's perceived from this book that he's coming under judgment, that there's this weight of this sin. And it, there's a beautiful, again, there's so much I want to read, but I'll just indulge a, a minute here. Uh, evangelist says, why, not, why are you not willing to die since this life is attended by so many evils? Basically he says, why are you afraid to die? Wouldn't that be the cessation of your difficulties? It's a good question. Be careful when you ask that of a really depressed person. But anyway, he answers, because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower to the grave, lower than the grave, and I shall fall into Tophet or a, a place of fire. And sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit to go to judgment and from thence to execution. And the thoughts of this made me cry out. He says, I'm not afraid of death per se, or I'm afraid of death, not for death's sake, but because of what follows death. He knew his sin would sink him. What a beautiful language, lower than the grave. And evangelist says, you know, why are you standing still? He gives him a piece of parchment. It says, a fly from the wrath that is to come. He asks, where should I go? And, and this seems just too good to not read. Evangelist pointing his finger over a wide field says, do you see yonder wicket gate? Now, I thought wicket was like a wicker basket as a kid. I thought it was not a very effective gate. That's not what it is. It, it means a narrow gate, a small gate. He says, do you see the small gate or the straight gate? Astounding answer, no. So again, he knows his problem. He does not and cannot see the solution. Have you ever been in that place in life? I know something's horribly wrong. I can't see how to fix it. What a beautiful picture. And then the evangelist goes, well, then do you see yonder shining light? I think I do, he says. What a beautiful way of describing the soul in these early moments and stages of the Lord drawing the soul or the, of the, a person to himself. He says, keep that light in your eye and go directly, so shall you see the gate and I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door, but his wife and children perceiving it began to cry after him to return. But the man, this is one of my favorite sections in all of the book. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So he looked not behind him, 
but he fled towards the middle of the plain. That scene should remind us of a few uh, parables or teachings of our Savior, specifically in the middle of the book of Luke. What's the theme that's emerging in this scene of him fleeing from his family? What's that? You leave the world behind. Sounds very reminiscent unless you hate father and mother, son and daughter, husband and wife. You cannot be my disciple. He's quoting actually from Luke 14. There's another little phrase he works in there, and he did not look behind. Where does that come to us from? Lot's wife. He, he saw in, his, in, in the flight of Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah a similar flight that Pilgrim is making. And he knew that unless a person be willing to leave all behind, the words of Jesus would ring true, you are not then worthy to be my disciple. Two neighbors decide to follow him. Uh, they have names. I love his names. They're not super hard to figure out like where and how this character is. You ever watch a movie and you're like, I'm not sure if this character is a good guy, bad guy, what I should think. Uh, when their name is obstinate, you're like, I, I think I got a bead on this guy. Uh, obstinate and pliable are two characters that go out and chase him and they're, they're symbolizing what kinds of opposition you're going to get from the world. And they largely come in two types. And the first is this character by the name of Obstinate. Now, he catches up with Pilgrim just outside of town as he's trying to keep the light of the wicked gate in his eyes and chase it down. Uh, They catch up with him. And uh, Obstinate says, uh, what are the things you seek since you leave all the world to find them. What a huge question. If you were to ask that of a Christian who was running towards the cross of Christ, leaving all behind, what is it that they're seeking? The difficulty is uh, many Christians now would have the whole cart of all that they owned with them uh, and having not left it all behind, But his answer is just heart-stirring because he's chasing down the same thing that we're chasing down. Christian says, I seek an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that doesn't fade away. It's laid up in heaven and safe there and to be bestowed at the time appointed on them that diligently seek it. Read it in the book. It is so. Isn't that what you're chasing down, Christian listener? An imperishable inheritance that upon God's timing will be bestowed. I love some of the ways characters talk. Obstinate says, tush. What an intellectual response, Obstinate. Obstinate is not really, he doesn't care what people think about him. He says, away with your book. Will you go back or not? This is a person who is not even willing to engage the proposals of Christianity. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to engage. They don't want to talk about it. They don't care. The only thing they care about is will you come back or not? Pilgrim to this responds that you can't turn your away when you put your shoulder into the plow. 
him and obstinate go uh, back and forth. Pliable gets in there a little bit, but we're not going to uh, get in there. And obstinate quickly begins to ridicule them. He calls them uh, fools. He calls them brain sick fellows. He says, go back and be wise. And then realizing that a pilgrim just will not be convinced at all. Obstinate's final words are, I will go back to my place, said Obstinate. I will, n- I will be no companion of such misled, fantastical fellows. Now, he uses fantastic in a very different way than you and I would. <laughs> Aren't Christians seen by some in the world as just being Fools. Basically, go and chase your make-believe unicorn of a god. Have it. No good interaction, no really serious consideration of truth, and they leave. That is some of the folks you will engage in this life. And if you just take thought, I'm sure family members of some sort or extension would fit this. I'm sure that friends and neighbors would um, fall into this category. My, one of my grandparents had a neighbor with whom he kept trying to share the gospel and the man would get instantly angry every time and told him, don't talk to me about this again till one of us is on our deathbed. My grandfather fell sick before him and he came to visit him and he said, you said I could talk to you about something on a deathbed. Still no conversion that we would know, but there are some who even on a deathbed won't hear the truth of the gospel. Pliable is a different sort. Pliable is very amiable, very willing to hear. He, he has the appearance of someone who is teachable when in actual fact he's not discerning. There is a difference between a person who believes everything and a person who's teachable. One could like, the first one would like discernment, and whatever new thing they're studying, that's the thing they're really into. Or whatever religion they're studying, that's the one for them. And they, they, they don't think their way through truth. Now, it's, it's curious. Pliable doesn't have a burden, which, as we've said, means what? No conviction of sin. Does he have sin? He does, but there's no conviction of it. So his, we'll call it fleeing for the time being, his fleeing of the uh, the city of destruction isn't motivated by the burden of sin on his back. It's motivated by something else, and it's subtly, this is where Bunyan's genius comes through in the dialogue. Pliable wants the benefits of God, but he doesn't want God. And you can see it in his interactions. And again, I'm going to read. I'll stop apologizing because I'm just going to do it anyway. So I'm going to read a little bit longer here. And I want you to hear the give and take between the two and hear the types of things that he's talking about. Christian is, is really concerned with the burden on his back. How can I be delivered from this? Pliable makes no mention of such things. So uh, on page seven in the green down at the bo- uh, bottom, uh, Pliable says, and do you think the, book, the words of your book are certainly true? Do you think the Bible is true? Christian says, yes, verily. Pliable says, well said. What things are they? 
Christian, there's an endless kingdom to be inhabited. And everlasting life to be given to us that we might inhabit the kingdom forever. Pliable, well said. What else? It's like he's trying to barter and get more out of the deal than he can. And Christian says, well, there are crowns of glory to be given us and garments that will make us shine like the sun in the firmament of heaven. Pliable. This is very pleasant. What else? Christian, well, there should be no more crying nor sorrow for he that is the owner of that place will wipe all tears from our eyes. That should remind us of the book we're studying on Wednesday night, right? That should remind us of the end of the book of Revelation. Pliable says, and what company shall we have there? It's like your kids, when they get a little older, they suddenly become concerned not with what they're doing, but who's going to be there? Christian says, well, we shall be with seraphims and cherubims, creatures that will dazzle your eyes to look upon them. They're also there Also, you shall meet with thousands and tens of thousands that have gone before us to that place. None of them are hurtful, but loving and holy, everyone walking in the sight of God. And he continues on and on and on and on. Pliable, hearing hearing of this is enough to ravish one's heart. But are these things to be enjoyed? How shall we get to be sharers thereof? How do I get that stuff? He's asking that from a very different angle than Christian's looking at it. Christian says the governor of that country has recorded in a book the substance of all this. If we will truly, willingly to have him, he will bestow it on us freely. Pliable, I'm glad to hear of these things. Come, let us mend our pace. Let's go faster. He wants all of that. That, uh, those are the last words before they come to this place that is, is very well known. It, it's called, let me, way off my notes here, the Slough of Despond. Now some alternate barbaric pronunciations be the slew. Or as I've heard uh, Derek Thomas mention, some call it the slough. If any of you call it the slough of despond, Brace thyself for ridicule. I'm going to call it the slough because I'm odd and a hick in the homeschool. If you call it the slough, uh, the Lord can you know, mend the fence at some point. So uh, they come upon the slough of despond. Uh, it's just described as a miry slough that's in the middle of the plain on the way to where they're going. Its name was the slough of despond. They, follow, or they fall into it, both Christian and pliable, Pliable falls in and he's asking, you know, where Christian is. The idea is they're, they're in the midst of this bog and can't see one another. Christian says, truly, I don't know. The Slough of Despond is this way of picturing uh, what, you, what we would probably, the closest we could ever call it in some cases would be like depression. A deep dark place, specifically with regards to conviction. I don't think it's accidental that Christian falls far more deeply into it than Pliable. Pliable falls in a little and then is quickly out and runs the other way. 
Christian falls in, and he's and Buddy is careful to mention that even though he's in it, he doesn't turn back to go to the closer shore from where he came. He actually continues toward the light that comes through the narrow gates. And I mean, isn't it true when you enter upon such dark nights of the soul? Would probably be what we'd call it. And someone asks you, "What's wrong?" Isn't Christian's answer just perfect? I don't know. I know pieces of it, but I just don't know. Pliable, I love this. Pliable began to be offended and angry. (laughs) That was quick. He says, is this the happiness you told me all the while? Is Is this the kingdom you told me about? They meet a little opposition, and he turns and he runs. Does that remind us of anything in the scriptures? You have the thorns. There's another one, same parable. Uh, Yeah, it could be the yoke of of difficulty, but along with the thorns, what's another soil? There's the rocky ground that when the sun rises, when trials come, they fall away. This is the Christian that thinks that God will make my life so much better in this life. And then when tragedy hits, uh, they say, this is not what I signed up for. How many Christians have you known, Christians by self-profession, were Christians until something happened, something bad. And they said, my God would never do this to me. My argument is, yes, you're right, your God wouldn't. The real God, well, he, he does. I'm sure as you, as you all saw uh, in the email this week, some dear friends of ours, uh, their daughter got in a car accident just days after her wedding and they're not sure if she'll ever wake up from the coma or ever be right with her brain ever again. Lovely Christian gal, Christian husband. They've got to be asking the same thing. We t- uh, Lacey talked with um, our friend who, whose daughter it is and she said, This is a difficult providence, but a providence nonetheless. And we're trusting in God. Now that's someone who doesn't turn away from the the slew of despond. That's someone who keeps their eye, knows it's dark, knows that some providences are frowning. But what does the hymn say? Behind Behind the clouds, he hides a smiling face. He's working, even though we don't know how. Pliable can't see it. He doesn't have the burden, so he gets out and he books it back to um, California. I mean, the um, sea of destruction. That's what, yeah, there's a slip there. A person comes along in the last four minutes. We'll get through this. A person comes along whose name is Help. Guess what he does? I I love uh, just how easy... Those who say this is dark and hard to understand, I'm like, what part is confusing? The guy's name is Help. He shows up and he's talking to Christian. Help says, but why didn't you look for the steps? And Christian's like, I didn't know there were steps. I would have used it. Uh, This is one of the places where marginal notes can be helpful. Mine say on the side of it, the promises. The steps out of the slough, or slough almost, I almost faltered, slough of despond 
are the promises of God. Isn't that often the way or always the way that a God-fearing man or woman comes out of those deep, dark moments or seasons of the soul? They step upon the promises. I will be with you. I will not leave you. I am your God. You are my son. I mean, we just, those are the steps that draw the soul out of the miry bog. Now, Christian gets out, and he has a really logical, reasonable question for help. He assumes help kind of knows his way around here. Uh, and Christian basically says, like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm still headed for that. But I got a question about this bog. Why don't y'all fix this dumb thing? He says, uh, why isn't this meted? Travelers might go thither with more security. And help said to him, this miry slough is such a place as cannot be mended. Oh, there's some profundity there. You take just the way that the human soul is in wrestling with its sin. It can't be mended on this side of things. Not this. It can't be mended. Uh, it is the descent uh, thither of scum and filth that attends the conviction of sin. So he says, like, all the conviction of sin has, like, a drainage. And this is the low point. And so you'd have to stop the conviction of all sin to get, a, to, to get rid of uh, this bog of despond. Therefore, it's called the slough of despond for Still, as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there arises in the soul many fears and doubts, discouraging apprehensions, which all of them get together and settle in this place. And this is the reason for the badness of this ground. It is not the pleasure of the king that this place should remain so bad. He's hinting at things to come. His laborers have also, or his laborers also have, by the directions of his majesty's surveyors, uh, been for about this sixteen hundred years. What kind of years is he writing in? He's like, yeah, from Jesus to now, we've been working on this thing to no avail. Uh, they've employed about this patch of ground, if perhaps it might have been mended. Yea, and to my knowledge, said he. Here has been swallowed up at least 20,000 cartloads. Yea, millions of wholesome instructions. Always told you what the cartloads are. Have you ever talked with someone? And though you're saying, like, all the right stuff, it's having no effect. They're still wallowing in, in and under the conviction of sin. I've had that occasion both with others and with myself. You hear the good words, you hear the right things, and there are just times where it can't dispel the darkness yet. They've all, they, in all these seasons, been brought from all places of the king's dominions, and they that can tell say they are the best materials to make the ground good of this place. So he's saying the, the information, the the uh, instruction given, the problem's not in the instruction that's given. If it be so, it would have been mended. But it is the slough of despond still. And so will be 
when they have done what they can. True, they, there are, by the direction of the lawgiver, who would that be? Well, it's, it's God, obviously. Certain good and substantial steps placed even through the very midst of the slough, but at such times as this place does much spew its filth. So he says, even though this place is in this age, essentially, irreparable, the master of these lands put in steps, promises, that any pilgrim can climb to get out of that miry bog. Promises about what topics would you think, given what the bog is and what's on his back, what would some of those promises be that would form the steps coming out of the bog? With us and never forsake us? What's another one? Don't fear and have courage, yeah? That would be a big step. That's First John chapter 1, verse 9, I think, right? The verses about God's willingness and ability to forgive sin. You need both, don't you? What if he was willing but not able? Like That'd be like me telling you, like, hey, I am willing to pay off your house mortgage. Not able. You're like... This doesn't help me. <laughs> just aggravates me. And the other is true. What if I had the ability, but was like, yeah, I'm not willing to do that for you. <laughs> you signed up for it. You can pay it off. Like, neither of those helps you. But the God who's both willing and able to forgive sinners. Now, those are steps by which any sinner can climb out of the bog. And don't we hear those almost every Lord's Day, or I hope every Lord's Day? Either in the sermon or in a song or in the prayers that we pray, that he is willing and just, or willing and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all of our iniquities. That's the kind of God that we serve. So I am excited for the study that is uh, ahead of us. Next week, Pastor Charlie is going to pick it up from here and get us maybe halfway to the wicked gates, but uh, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Our great God and Father, we pray that this uh, book from Bunyan, our elder brother in the faith, would be a great balm and encouragement to the soul. We pray for those in our church who uh, have not yet come under conviction of sin and need to, oh God, that you would work in them, that they would not be like pliable or obstinate, but would know the weight of their sins, and they would look to the shining light and that you would draw them to yourselves. We pray our children would come under a conviction of sin and turn to Christ. We pray for Christians who at times are just beset with that weight and the thought and the miry bog of our sins. Oh God, that we'd remember your promises, that you are forgiving God and we can trust you. We pray as we draw near to worship you today among your assembled saints, that you would be pleased to smile upon us with the warmth and the nearness of your presence. We pray for our brothers and sisters as they drive here in icy conditions, that you'd keep every one of them safe, and that we would have a most blessed Lord's Day. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen.
We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.